Welcome to the Global CISO Forum, the podcast for information security executives. Welcome to the Global CISO Forum podcast. I'm your host, Amber Pedron Sully. Uh, we are so excited to be coming to you finally uh, with a new episode of the podcast. It's been um, quite some time since we were talking to any CISOs. Uh, and recording an episode for everybody. The pandemic uh, and, you know, I had a baby um, <laughs> have sort of interrupted our operations here, but we're getting back on track and we are actually in the studio. I'm here today with our producer, Saba Mohammed, um, and we have a really exciting interview to bring you. little different format. I actually am not the one who did the interview. So uh, we have a, a pre-interview before our main interview. So I would like to welcome... Brian Lopez. He is the Director of Emerging Technologies for the Department of the Navy's Chief Digital Innovation Officer. Welcome to the show, Brian. Oh, thanks, Amber. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So, Brian, um, the way we know each other, I mean, you you took the CCSO class, what was it, two years ago? Yes, I think so. Or was it three? Something like that, a few years ago. Yeah, a few years ago. And you enjoyed the content. You did great, of course, on the exam, passed it with flying colors. Um, and then you indicated you were interested in becoming an instructor and uh, run a lot of really great classes for EC Council. I really appreciate your passion, your enthusiasm that you put into every class. And now you've done something new for us. But tell us a little bit about your journey with CCSO and kind of how you got involved with EC Council. Um, well, uh, I heard about the CCSO uh, class. I thought I'd get the certification. So my instructor was Tari. And he was a great instructor. I sat through the class and then I took the exam and I've studied very hard, by the way, uh, passed the exam. And, and then uh, as time went on, I thought, you know, I'd like to be an instructor because I think uh, I worked in this field of uh, cybersecurity uh, in my Navy career. And then uh, after my Navy career, um, I kind of wanted to continue this track. And so I also like teaching. I come from a family of educators and I, and I think it's, it's just something that resonated with me. So I took the class again with Tari uh, a second time to get certified as an instructor. And and then in the last couple of years, I've been teaching the class for EC Council. I, I really enjoy it. And it gives me a chance to meet with up and coming CISOs. Some are sitting CISOs and uh, really exchange ideas. What I really like most about it is I get to weave some of my own experiences in from my previous uh, career into the course material. And it seems to resonate with the students a lot. That's what we love in a CCSO instructor. So you mentioned your career in the Navy. Um, tell us how you got started with cyber in the Navy. I was a cryptologist in the Navy, and I came in as an enlisted cryptologist, uh, joined in 1985. A couple of years later, I uh, went back to school, uh, went to the University of New Mexico on the Naval ROTC scholarship, and uh, received a commission in 1990 and became an officer and then spent the next uh, 25 years, so a total of 30 years as a cryptologist. But in our field, um, uh, the first half of my career was really focused on signals intelligence. That's what cryptologists do, uh, and airborne reconnaissance. And then in the second half of my career, uh, mm. the community began to shift its focus. Um, cyber emerged out of, uh, you know, it sort of took a place in the limelight, and it became, uh, I think a lot of people refer to it as the fifth domain. Uh, it is a warfighting uh, pillar, and so I think uh, our community was assigned that pillar or accepted that pillar, and uh, 
I began to shift focus, as did many in, in our community, towards more, not away from SIGINT, but uh, we took on this new mantle of uh, cyber and cybersecurity and cyber operations. And that's how I got into it probably 15, 20 years ago. So very experienced. Um, so you retired from the Navy, correct me if I'm wrong, and then now you're back. So I, I retired from the Navy uh, from active duty uh, after 30 years, five years ago. Oh, my God. <laughs> so uh, so a, a total uh, 30 years in the Navy and then five years retired now makes 35 years. And then um, I, I uh, after I retired from active duty, bounced around a bit, uh, worked for a couple of industry partners, um, uh, global names um, in the industry, uh, went back to the government for a couple of years, and then... Um, and then kind of uh, took another job with industry. Uh, it's an interesting thing after you leave the military, you're trying to figure out what your best fit is. And uh, recently went back to government. So now uh, accepted a job with uh, the Department of the Navy's Chief Digital Innovation Officer in, in my role as a Director of Emerging Technologies. And I'm excited about that because uh, it gives me a chance to work in, uh, you know, uh, in cyber. But uh, leveraging technologies like 5G, artificial intelligence, machine learning, uh, quantum com computing, and uh, and maybe even uh, some far out things like uh, free space optics, um, how they apply to networks, uh, uh, unmanned uh, surface air, and so how do we leverage these technologies for the fifth domain within the military? And, and so that's where I'll be working now. That is so exciting! What a job title too. I mean, it's a mouthful, but it is uh, a lot of very cool words. I, I think it's, <laughs> right. it's got to be fun, right? Looking forward to it, really. Am. So mm -hmm. earlier today, you sat down virtually with retired Vice Admiral Jan Teague, mm -hmm. who you actually have quite a history with and who was a great interview subject. And, you know, for the audience, the reason that Brian uh, conducted the interview is because he had... You know, he knew Jan, he's he's connected with EC Council, but he has, you know, of course, a Navy background that, that I lack. And we thought that the, the conversation would be a lot more illuminating with him uh, running the interview. So I've, you know, I, I was listening to it and it was just fascinating. You guys talked about so many different things, one of them being the ways that the Navy decides what job role you're going to be in and how that can influence someone's performance. And then the the kind of really cool ways that that can be the lessons learned from that can be applied to industry. That I thought was just a great conversation you guys had, and I can't wait for our audience to hear it. Spot on. I, I really enjoyed talking to the admiral. We've known each other for years. Um, admiral Ty uh, and I met at the Naval Postgraduate School, and then later she was the president of the postgrad the Navy Postgraduate School in Monterey, California. Um, but uh, we have a similar background. She's a couple of years ahead of me. And uh, we both went to the language school in Monterey, Defense mm -hmm. Language Institute. We both went to the Naval Postgraduate School, Electrical Engineering. Um, and we both worked uh, in the last decades or so in cyber cyber operations and cybersecurity. She led our community. And uh, so we were both cryptologists slash information warfare officers. And, um, and, and our conversation really was about exactly as you said, um, we kind of uh, talked about uh, what led to the creation of the CyberQ uh, Cyber Aptitude Battery. And, and the idea came from her and uh, when she was the commander of 10th Fleet. But I, I, I will uh, 
I will leave that for the rest of the interview, but I will just say we talk about our Navy careers and how that applies to the civilian world and how the CyberQ aptitude battery emerged and how it can be applied in the civilian world. It, it's an invaluable tool. Um, I don't want to steal the thunder from the interview, though, so I, I'll leave it at that. You know, it really goes to the heart of a problem with information security in general is, you know, a lack, a problem with staffing, a lack of qualified people. Um, so any any tool that helps to to kind of tackle that and and help more people get yes. into cyber and keep the right people, you know, engaged and um, by making sure that they're in the correct role is just so helpful for the community. Um, and yeah, I really appreciated that and your your guys's conversation was fascinating so without further ado we will throw to your interview um thank you again so much brian for conducting the interview and i hope we can have you back on the show thanks Amber. it was a pleasure great talking to you this morning we'll be talking to vice admiral jan tai she is uh retired from the navy a couple of years now and uh she joins us uh short intro about admiral tai Jan Tai currently serves on the board of directors for Goldman Sachs, the Huntsman Corporation, Progressive Insurance, IronNet Cybersecurity, and she serves as a trustee for the MITRE Corporation. Jan retired from the Navy in August of 2018 as a vice admiral, serving as the deputy chief of naval operations for information warfare and as the 66th director of naval intelligence. Previously, she served as the commander of U.S. Fleet Cyber Command, and U.S. 10th Fleet, where she was the first woman to command a numbered fleet. A career cryptologist, she served around the globe in leadership positions for both the Navy and the National Security Agency, specializing in signals intelligence and cyber operations. She earned Naval Aviation Observer Wings and supported Operation Desert Storm in EP-3 aircraft. Jan's a 1984 graduate of the U.S. Naval Academy and has a doctorate in electrical engineering and a Master of Science in Applied Mathematics from the Naval Postgraduate School in Monterey, California. Jan's also a National Association of Corporate Directors Governance Fellow. Welcome, Admiral, and uh, thanks so much for taking the time to talk to us this morning. Well, thanks, Brian. Looking forward to it. Uh, great catching up with you. Uh, I, I'll just uh, set the tone here that the Admiral and I go back uh, several years. We've known each other for a long time because we served in the same community in the Navy. So uh, um, I, we've known each other for many years, but I think you know many members of my family as well. He, I think you you know my uncle who uh, retired as a captain, my uncle Clyde, and his daughter Barbara, and and I think you flew with my brother in uh, out in the Westpac back in the maybe nineties, eighties or nineties. Yeah, that sounds that sounds right. Um, you and I met the Navy Postgraduate School in nineteen ninety or in the nineteen ninety eight for me. I think it was mid nineties. Um, when you were working on your PhD. And uh, so we were all cryptologists. And then um, you rose through the ranks and eventually led our community as the commander of Fleet Cyber Command and 10th Fleet. Can you share for the audience a little bit about a uh, snapshot, snapshot of our community and, and sort of what we're about? Well, sure. I'm happy to do that. Uh, the cryptological warfare community members uh, conduct a wide range of missions for the Navy, for joint commanders, and for the intelligence communities. Uh, we bring specialties in signals intelligence, electronic warfare, and cyber warfare. And that includes both the offensive and the defensive aspects of cyber warfare. Oh, thank you, Admiral. I, I think like, like 
like me, you probably did the first half of your career more in signals intelligence. And uh, at least for me, second half of my career was more focused on cyber and cyber operations. Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, uh, so uh, I got to shift back to family a bit because uh, you know a lot of our family, but my dad, Stanley, um, was also a cryptologist and he he later became a college professor after he retired from active duty. And, and I think at one point you mentioned that uh, several members of your family are educators as well. Uh, that's exactly right. Um, I come from an entire family. Both my parents uh, are teachers. Um, and my brother went into the family business, which was teaching. Is that right? And uh, that's right. And so uh, I was a black sheep in the family to go in the Navy. So that's funny that you say that because uh, <laughs> when we were at the Naval Post Graduate School, um, I, I remember talking to you then and I thought you said at some point, but you can you can correct me if I'm wrong, um, that someday maybe I, I was like, I, I think the question was like, well, what do you think you'll do with the PhD? Um, and uh, you said well, someday maybe I'd like to uh, teach at a university or maybe even go into the administrative side of the house. And then you eventually became the president of the Naval Postgraduate School. That's an amazing story. It, it, it is. It was an unlikely story because um, they changed out the position from being a military officer to a civilian, which was still, uh -huh. you know, within the realm of the possible for me. But I was I had the privilege of, of leading the Naval Postgraduate School uh, it was when I was a one star during a pretty challenging time for them yeah. um, in their history. But I'm happy to report they are thriving and uh, today. And uh, I get to still stay in touch with them as part of um, an advisory board member for the Naval Postgraduate School at, um, Foundation. So we stay connected and uh, I'm able to keep up on, you know, all the great things that they're doing. Well, that's phenomenal. I was up there last week in Monterey visiting the Naval Post Graduate School and uh, had the privilege of meeting Vice Admiral Rondeau. Uh, she's she's now retired as well, but uh, leading a phenomenal team there. So yes. uh, it's one of my favorite places, and uh, it's it's always a pleasure to connect with uh, what they're doing up there on, on my side of the house as well. Um, yes. So before we get into CyberQ Aptitude Battery, uh, let's let's talk a little bit more about your challenges when you were the Fleet Cyber Command, Commander of Fleet Cyber Command and 10th Fleet. What challenges did you encounter? And I know they're myriad, but uh, I'm really focused on the manpower piece because um, manpower in cybersecurity today is not only a challenge of recruitment, but also retention and skill sets, et cetera. But can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. Um, you know, when I took over mm -hmm. at Fleet Cyber Command, <clears throat> Uh, the Navy was just coming out of uh, Operation Rolling Tide, which was an intrusion mm -hmm. into our into our principal um, Kona Space Network. And so, simultaneously uh, with with you know coming out of that, we were in the process of building the Cyber Mission Force. So, thank huge growth in the numbers of people going to cyber teams under you know Navy cyber teams under my command. Um, and that was the CTNs and the ITs and ISs, but a big part of it was the CTNs. And so that was a, you know, we had just established the CTN community in uh, 2005, 2006 timeframe. And so by, uh, by, by 2014, um, we were uh, in a fairly steady place. It was a 
pretty steady growth all the way through, but the cyber mission force came on quickly and the ramp up in the number of people that we needed to get uh, on mission and into the teams, building the teams was, was quite large. And so, um, we were, you know, we were very focused on obtaining the talent, you know, recruiting the right talent. Um, but also, you know, how were we going to train them? Um, the question I was probably asked most by Congress and, you know, the media, et cetera, is, well, once you train them up, how are you going to retain them? Because the competition yeah, sure. in the in the commercial sector is great. And we knew that, you know, we'd never be able to pay them enough money to, um, you know, to compete with the private sector. And so my philosophy on that was we have to be able to give them the training and tools and get them on a mission that they are very excited about. You know, so no, you know, not a lot of downtime, but equip them with the training and tools and get them on a mission. And um, that's what we tried to do. And, you know, have them be excited about the work they were doing and tap into something bigger than themselves in terms of, you know, defense of our country and protection of our nation. Uh, thank you, Admiral. Uh, CTNs, uh, CTN Cryptologic Technician Networks. And, yes. um, and, and um, to your point, Rolling Tide, Operation Rolling Tide was sort of a benchmark for a change in, in uh, I mean, it sort of woke everybody up to, to this whole new branch of warfare that, that we are in. And so uh, everything you That's said right. is, uh, is exactly right. Um, I think retention, and I'll just give a couple of uh, thoughts about retention in, in my own opinion is, because um, I worked with sailors. I was a sailor uh, before I became an officer. And, and I think uh, as long as sailors are engaged and feel that they are employed doing something that they believe in, they'll stay. So I know a lot of uh, typically, I'll say some of the, the sponsors, the budget sponsors are like, well, how do we keep these guys? We're going to invest in them and then they're going to go get, make a bunch of money somewhere else. Well, people don't join the military to make a bunch of money. People join the military because they believe in uh, an ideal bigger than themselves. And, and I know that's where you're from and, and where you were coming from as the commander. And, and I think you're right. Uh, uh, they'll stay because they believe in it. But uh, so specifically, what skill sets do you think were most desirable at that point? And maybe even as you evolved from the from that first inflection point until the time you left the Navy, what skill sets, cyber skill sets, do you think were most important? Well, I think um, when when you look at the um, eighteen year olds that we were take that we were taking in to turn into our cyber workforce, I think we are looking for um, you know an analytical mind. Um, I was hopeful that they were curious and interested in the work because what you find is that um, particularly as you're hunting adversaries on our network or uh, heaven forbid you have an intrusion and you're in an active engagement with the adversary, um, a lot of times the first set of information that you have is never quite right, you know, and it would be easy to jump to conclusions about the situation on your network and perhaps do all the wrong things. And so having sort of that analytical mind and curiosity to say, um, 
this is what it looks like, but what else could it be? What else could be out there? Um, I think, you know, was was very, very important in not leaping to conclusions about um, about the defense and where we should go and what we should do. And, and I think it applies to many, many of the work roles that we have, either on the intelligence side or on the defensive side. Um, and, you know, I think those are are the uh, foundational sort of skills that you'd be looking for in your cyber workforce, come, bringing them in the front door. You know, I was watching a, you and I are not digital natives because we grew up in an era before all of this came about, before the internet became a common everything, everyday thing. Um, I was watching a uh, video last night and it was a YouTube thing and they had a bunch of, uh, these kids look to be probably high school or just beyond. And uh, they whoever produced the video, put them down in front of a Windows 95 machine just to see if they could even connect to the internet. <laughs> and, and so it was interesting because, um, you know, in such a short time, at least in our frame of reference, it's been such a short time that we've come so far that that to them, they just could not conceive. And, you know, when they had to sit there and wait for the modem, they were like, oh my gosh, I can't believe we even, why, why didn't you just give up back then? So we've come a long way, but to speak about kids today or recruiting talent today, young sailors, I mean, they're starting at an entire different level than, than you and I did. Uh, so it's really interesting uh, to, to watch those kind of things. But um, uh, speaking of that, two of my sons are cryptologic CTNs, cryptologic network technicians. Um, and um, uh, that's my, I have two daughters and three sons. My oldest son and my youngest son are the CTNs. And when they joined the Navy, of course, I kind of shaped where I thought would be the best place for them to go. I said, if you want to work in cutting edge work in the wave of the future, then be a CTN. It took a little cajoling because I don't think they were completely convinced. You know, CTN doesn't sound all that exciting. And, uh, and the recruiting was trying to sell them on, the recruiter was trying to sell them on nuclear programs. And, and that sounds cutting edge, but it's truly not as cutting edge as the work that, that you led for our community. So. When, when they joined, they took a, a, a test called the ASVAB, and it's the DOD's General Enlisted Entry Exam. Um, it, it's not an easy exam. I, I took it, you know, more than 30 years ago. But the exam tests a variety of different skill sets. I mean, it's it's you can think of it like an SAT or ACT, but it's so much more than that. Those pockets of those similar types of things are embedded within the ASVAB. But then the ASVAD has things like spatial recognition, um, uh, tool recognition, um, of, uh, speed test, cognition, all things to try to get a better understanding of the sailor's not only interest, but potential for a particular job. Recruiters use that ASVAB results, which are very detailed in a variety of different um, uh, areas, to try to do the best placement. And that's good because uh, you, even in my time when I enlisted, um, I, I don't know that recruiters spent an awful lot of time trying to find the best fit and feel for you. They're like, hey, we've got a hot one here. you know. So today I think we spend more time, the Navy is a, a, at, at large, trying to place sailors in the skills and the interest where they'll be uh, of best help to themselves and the Navy. Anyway, uh, right now, uh, we're still using the ASVAB. It, it, I mean, uh, do you know anything about that piece of it? Just for generally, for CTNs coming into the community, and you were there when we created, created the CTN rating or skill set, um, are we still using the ASVAB to bring them in? Is that the 
I think it's the initial test, but there is anything else right now on active duty to kind of uh, figure out where their best placement is? Yeah, I I took the ASVAB when I was in high school, even though I, I knew I was going to the Naval Academy, but I wanted to take it to see what it said. Um, I think it predicted my greatest success in as an aviation mechanic. I don't know if you remember what your result was, <laughs> but I think those spatial things were, you know, like if you folded this shape, what would it make? Yes. You know, the kind of, I think those were, um, that abstraction for me was, was really good. But, um, yeah, I think the Navy is, is, is wedded to the ASVAB as a, uh, entry level test for everybody we bring in, gives them a baseline mm-hmm. that they can compare everybody to. Um, and, and that's good. As you suggest, it's got the cognitive, it's got a whole, it's got a whole lot of indicators in there that can predict potential future success. Um, but at the end of the day, it's still quite a blunt instrument when it comes to yes. um, placing, you know, so now you've got somebody and it says they would be good as a CTN and probably the same ASVAB scores as you suggested would suggest that they could, should go into the you know, submarine community. And, um, you know, that's a, you know, the same thing goes on with the linguists, you know, there, there's a, there's a, there's a competition there for the same types of people sure. with the same types of test. And, um, so once you, you know, once you have the CTN, um, identified, then what, because there's so many different types of work roles, uh, for the CTN. Yes. I think that's where yes. we're lacking a capability. So I, I think you're exactly right. And, and and that's kind of what I was driving to is we have the ASVAB in many ways, you know, it's, it's, uh, in many ways you could see it if we're looking across the entire Navy as, Hey, this is pretty specific. It gets down to some, uh, nitpick, uh, skill sets or, uh, very fine points about where you, your best placement will be. If we look at it as far as just a, once we get a sailor identified to be a future C, future CTN, then how do we figure out which, which area of cyber or cybersecurity is that sailor best fit for? So I think that's, uh, we're going to talk some more about that, but that's what I think you were saying. And, and I agree with that. But uh, I'll do another comparison because you and I also both attended the Defense Language Institute, um, DLI in Monterey. And it's the, it's the DOD's prestigious Navy language or prestigious language school. All services go, but as, as cryptologist, I, I, did you study Russian there? I did. Yes, uh, me too. I think maybe you were just a little ahead of me. Uh, but uh, the selection process for, for DLI is also um, uh, stringent and it's challenging. And could you talk a little bit about that? Well, sure. Um, I think I assume both of us uh, were um, candidates for DLI because we were going to a job that required us to have the language, which you know, was the EP3 flight duty um, yes. that we were going to serve in. And so before they, you know, the Navy would commit to sending us down the fairly lengthy pipeline of um, to get to the EP3 uh, flight duty status, um, they used the D lab to make sure that we were going to be successful in, 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 um, being able to acquire foreign language. And so I was about eight and a half months pregnant at the time. Um, oh my was, gosh, I didn't yeah. know that. 
Yes, I was about eight and a half months pregnant. I had worked a full day and then oh um, I sat down and took the D-Lab. And uh, so it, but, you know, it was pretty exciting. I, I really wasn't very good at English to begin with. Um, so, um, but there is a lot of, uh, in my view, there's a lot of math and rule, you know, applying rules to language that, um, foreign languages do a much better job than English does. So, um, you know, I, I was able to take that test and get my result, which, you know, one of the primary things when I was community leader, we used it for was to make sure that we were slating, um, the linguists into languages where they would be successful. So the more difficult the language, the higher grade you needed to have. So we sort of had bands of yes. D-Lab results that would then slate, um, you know, sailors into uh, an area, into a language where we thought they would be successful based on the D-Lab result. And, and just as an example to follow up on that, I think uh, uh, category two languages would be something like the Romance languages, Spanish, French, um, I think even German is a category two language. Yes. Um, category three, Russian, and right. uh, then and maybe Polish, and category four, Chinese and Arabic. And Correct. so, in order to get into those categories of the languages, um, like the admiral was suggesting, you had to score a high enough and also a certain variety of of skill sets to be able to uh, qualify for that language. In conversations, as I understand it, I, I think that youth. Because of your experience with the ASVAB and the D-Lab, and I'm not sure if you took the aviation exam, the AQTFAR for the military, but um, those types of uh, exams, particularly the D-Lab, yeah, I think the idea was yours while you were commander of 10th Fleet to go, hey, is there something like this that we could use or apply to maybe uh, screen our cyber, our future cyber talent? Can you talk about that? Sure. Um, I think... Um at the time, as I suggested, we were looking at the D-Lab data um, because mm -hmm. we were finding that we really probably need to raise the minimum standard of folks coming in from 100 to 110 um, because we found that people in that 100 to 110 range um, were not doing very well. And you don't want to take a... Yes, the linguists. I'm sorry. The uh -huh. linguists were not doing very well. So there was there was just a wealth of data that compared the aptitude batteries to the successful performance of the linguist, you know, after they get through um, language school. And um, again, we were looking at just tons of data coming from the University of Maryland. At the time, it was called Castle, the Center for Applied Studies in Language. I think that's what it was. And they've changed, they've changed their names now. But it was a data-rich environment for me to, to take on the policy of what gets you in. What's the bare minimum to get you in to be a linguist? And then, you know, use the fidelity of the test to place you into the right category of language. And so when you think about the ASVAB as you described it, it's the bare minimum to get you into the cryptologic technician networks rating, right? Sure. But then so many different work roles similar to um, so many different languages with different and competing skill sets that um, I was looking for that next level of fidelity to 
make sure that if you use the language example, we're not putting people who are going to be successful in Chinese into the Spanish and vice versa, right? We want to place people where they're going to be successful. So um, multiple work roles across defense and offense in the Navy for a cryptologic technician network. Um, But they were not all equal in the complexity, in the critical thinking skills, et cetera. So I was looking for some type of cognitive battery like the D-Lab that would help me identify on the front end the people that were going to be successful in our most difficult work roles. Tool developer, for example, um, an interactive operator, uh, an exploitation analyst, all on the cyber side. So how did we Mm -hmm. sort, once they became CTNs, to identify people who are going to have an aptitude to be successful in our hardest jobs. That was that was sort of my 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 going in thought. Do we have something like that? And it turned out that um, University of Maryland had you know their research had already been looking at that. I think they were doing it for the National Security Agency, and we sort of picked up the project and 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 tried to make a running start with it by you know sort of identifying at least successful people who actually already had the training and and applying this uh, aptitude test to them to see if we could categorize the types of people that were succeeding in different work roles, you know, sort of a benchmarking um, of, of sure. the tests that they, they had developed. So um, just going back to uh, when you were looking at all the data collected as far as the success rate for linguists, did you track them throughout their career or just beyond this or in this school, how far did you go out? Yeah, I, they had data for both because, you know, we, um, for foreign language proficiency pay, they have to keep retesting. Yes. And it's, you know, your language capability is not the only thing that makes you a good sailor or a good linguist, you know, the actual technical right. proficiency, but it's a, it's a factor. And, um, you know, you have to be able to maintain, maintain that language. And um, so, they had good data that you know transcended uh, a career at different levels in their career on who was going to be successful. So, uh, you know, I was very compelled by that, and I thought if we can create something like that to help us lo- line up our CTN workforce to the right, right work roles, um, we would actually have a better uh, chance of retaining these people because we'd put them in roles that are challenging for them, but not something that they're you know, that they don't have a predilection for that type of work or they don't have an aptitude for that type of work. Sure. Or or in, like in my case, maybe they think that they wouldn't be good at it. Turns right. out that they might be. So uh, so what was the most compel- uh, compelling factors that you found in the University of Maryland's research that you went, hey, I think we should either think about adopting this or something. What What kinds of or what things did you go, hey, this really points to that? Yeah, well, during my time, um, we were at the very beginning of this project. So the mm-hmm. best I had, as I said, mm-hmm. was the compelling data that was about the linguist and their mm-hmm. ability to, oh, you know, to, 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 to track that. I didn't have um, at that point, uh, you know, a long history of data helping us. You know, we were we were in the build it phase, if you will, by sure. matching people that were in those work roles 
asking them if they'd be willing to take this test and then bringing the data back. That all didn't complete while I was uh, still commander. So that, you know, that work continued beyond me. Were you able to arrive at a, uh, a maybe a, an initial battery before you left that you were able to employ and, and maybe uh, get some initial data sets on as far as placement before you left? No, no, we weren't. I, I probably started about halfway through my command tour. So, um, I see. you know, a lot of this was just, you know, in the early stages of setting it up. Do you think uh, something like this should be added as an entrance requirement for future cyber candidates in the Navy? And, and then we'll get to the civilian aspect of it. But and what about cryptology? You think I'm, I, I'm assuming it, we, we haven't done the app yet, but do you think it would be useful? Well, I think it, it could be a tool that's used um, on the front end for a lot of people. But again, um, that, that's going to be a big expense. So it's going to take a lot sure. of justification um, to test everybody on the front end. For me, it was always about placement in the job. And, and maybe we uh -huh. grow into that front end piece um, because, you know, as our needs uh grow and evolve, we could be looking for other things in people that the ASVAB may not um, identify. So I certainly think sure. it could be. But, you know, as I said, what I was looking for was the ability to track people into places they were going to be successful. Absolutely. I know we have the ASVAB and the D-Lab is taken at the same time at the entry into the military. But I, I could almost see the D-Lab being taken maybe after uh, once they're assigned to the DLI and they get there to place in a particular language, maybe that model. Yeah, they they don't they don't give everybody the D lab. Oh, it's it's only a small portion. That's that's mm -hmm. that was exactly the struggle that I had in raising the minimum standard because the models suggested that they'd have to give it to a lot more people in order to meet our quotas. I was fine with that. Of course, I wasn't the one that had to pay for that. So <laughs> I just wanted oh. I just wanted the people that we turned into baby linguists to be successful. Sure. And, and, and bringing somebody who is, you know, you know that they've scored really well on the ASVAB. Maybe they'd be a great CTN, you know. Um, let's put them in, you know, someplace else where their sort of great ASVAB score um, will serve them well and they'll be enjoy doing it as opposed to force fitting them into a language that they may or may not be successful with. Spot on, spot on. Um, so we spent a lot of time talking about the Navy and I think that's kind of the foundation for where we're going. Uh, and so we're going to step away from the Navy's model that we've been talking about. We'll keep that in mind as we talk about now the next piece and thinking more in terms of your current commercial work, cyber Q aptitude that EC Council will soon be offering is based on that same idea you had when you were a commander. Yeah, I, I think it has quite broad applicability. Mm -hmm. Certainly the challenges that the military services have in bringing people in, you know, potentially right out of high school, maybe a little bit of college, and trying to, you know, determine if they have the aptitude to be successful in, you know, academically and in their work performance in cyber, you know, is is quite a challenge. The commercial sector has a little bit, you know, of a leg up in terms of bringing people in with potentially more formal education. But I think that you hear continuously that the cyber workforce is 
millions of jobs short, you know, millions of people short in terms of being able to fill the needs of companies. And um, so uh, having a tool like this that allows you to, first of all, screen your own workforce, like screen people that aren't in the IT or cyber field, that perhaps they're in an area that, um, I don't know how to say this, people worry about how automation is replacing jobs, right? So we need to upskill a lot of our workforce in the United States. We need to upskill them. I could see companies using this tool to find aptitude across their workforce and make, you know, and make offers to people to bring them in and develop them inside their company into roles that they're short on. And I think the other aspect of that is as a manager, you know, and you do have this cyber workforce or this uh, security workforce, um, you might not have people in the exact perfect role. You could use the aptitude test to identify people that might be actually more successful in a different work role than the one you hired them into. So I think it's got really, really broad applicability on the commercial side. I I think uh, I love it, by the way. It's a great idea. And uh, I mean, uh, kind of, it's not the exact same thing or anything like that, but I'm suggesting that the Myers-Briggs, and I think most people are familiar with the Myers-Briggs personality test, it kind of gives an insight into, uh, you know, sort of what your interests are and where you might, um, uh, you know, here's some things of that you may not have realized about yourself. And when I first took the Myers-Briggs, I think I was probably 25 years old, um, I, and it was kind of like an epiphany, like, oh, my gosh, that's who I am. It's true. Um, but I, I, I just to, to get some insight into it, I took the CyberQ aptitude uh, battery last week, and uh, I found it quite challenging, by the way, so... So it's good that we have a challenging test uh, for entry. Uh, um, there's a variety of different uh, skill sets or tasks that go along with it. I think it was about, took me about 90 minutes to two hours. I didn't time it, but somewhere in there, 90 to 120 minutes. But uh, I'll uh, just lay out a couple of the tasks here. They, they test speed, cognition, remote associates, statistical learning, anomaly detection, Dynamic systems control, matrix reasoning, pattern recognition, and then spatial integration. All, all of these skill sets would be used in one area or another, but um, the the CyberQ aptitude battery helps not only the individual, but the organization understand what that individual's uh, um, aptitude and proficiency might be, or even interest. And no surprise to me that I came out on the analysis side of the house, but I'm at an older point in my life now, so maybe maybe I've kind of um, shaped myself into that role over the course of years. I think the word they used is, uh, you know, to, to create the matrix, real-time versus exhaustive. I would call yes. it tactical, <laughs> tactical versus strategic. Yes. And the fact that you're in the strategic bin is not a surprise for me. Where I came out, and not unlike the Myers-Briggs, I was like, absolutely, that... But I think what happened uh, when I took the Myers-Briggs was there's so many more descriptors about how uh, you are described. And every one of them I read, I'm like, yes, that's me. That's me. Yes, that's me. And as soon as you begin to realize that about yourself, then you go, oh, yes, these are the things maybe I should be thinking about when I'm thinking about job placement, not only for myself, 
Um, but if you look at some of these batteries uh, for your employees, and to your point, exhaustive, there were a couple of these batteries that I definitely, these tasks where I felt exhausted at the end of them, but uh, it's absolutely true. Um, I think for me and, and where I fell out on the, more towards exhaustive and more towards analysis. And mm-hmm. um, I, I like I like interesting problems. I like challenging problems. Um, some of the skill sets were, do you sort of, and I'm going to paraphrase, uh, do you, are you the rubber stamp license plate making guy? Or are you the guy who likes cryptologic or cryptographic puzzles? And and, and so, I mean, these are extremes and, and these are oversimplified, but um, as far as those two ends of the spectrum. And uh, it, it, it's, it's interesting that sometimes we don't realize who we really are until we take a battery and it shows us. And then you go, oh, yeah, that, that really is me. But imagine, to your point, if you're the leader of an organization and you can get a better understanding of your, your team's skill sets and interests, the fit, fill, and placement that you could do for your team. And, and uh, you know, happy sailors, as we always say, happy sailors are, are, are working sailors and want to come to work every day. And that's the same for any civilian workforce. I, I feel the exact same way you do about the Myers-Briggs. I, um, it, you know, and I, I've taken it quite a few times. And uh-huh. I think, you know, the first step in the, in the evolution is understanding yourself. But the next part of it is how you interact with others. And so this the cyber, you know, the cyber Q aptitude test may be that way, right? The first thing we know about somebody is, you know, is is their aptitude in the cyber space. But there may be more things and more insights that we can gain that we incorporate into how we train them you know, or mm-hmm. how we assign them or how we mix them as part of a team. I think we're really at the beginning. Um, you know, it, my, my Myers-Briggs, I, um, I, I was able to go to a class, um, Leadership of the Peak in Colorado, which is wonderful. And you're supposed to take your results of all these different types of tests, leadership tests, back sure. and, and brief them to your boss. And I took mine back to CNO, who was my boss at the time. <laughs> and he said, oh, when I started to explain my Myers-Briggs, he goes, oh, you don't have to explain that to me. I'm the same thing and blah, 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 blah. And I, and I thought to myself, well, just knowing what his Myers-Briggs is really helps me Absolutely. to know how to commu- how to best communicate with him. Yes. And so I took that knowledge and I said, well, if I feel that way about him, what about my you know, 75 direct reports or how many crazy number yes. of people I had as direct reports. So I took it to my commander's conference and I briefed my results, not just the Myers-Briggs, but all my leadership um, so that they would know, you know, going in, you know, and, and we made it, you know, we I tried to make it funny, you know. <laughs> I, I think that's really generous. A, a yeah. lot of leaders wouldn't do that. Well, so very, I think that's very generous. But that's embracing vulnerability. But But my point is, you know, I took the Myers-Briggs, you know, probably eight years earlier, but but sort of the maturation of how to use it and how to make yourself a better leader. I think we'll see this on the CyberQ aptitude test as well. You know, I think it can help you figure out what areas you might want to go um, take courses in or train in. It might help you figure out 
who's what's the best way to compose a team based on aptitudes and preferences? You see what I'm saying? So I, I think, think there's a on. lot there's a lot still unexplored. We're in the early stages of what this could be. I, I think you're exactly right. I remember I, I took uh, the Navy corporate business course at at the Naval Postgraduate School, probably when I was a commander. And um, a couple of the other batteries that I remember taking were uh, the uh, the innovative adaptive battery, and then there was an emotional quotient battery. And I think the innovative adaptive was the most, the most eye-opening for me because innovative doesn't mean that you're more innovative. It means, and sort of the way they explained it was, the more innovative you are, um, the more apt you are maybe to sort of go around the rules, not necessarily break the law, but you see the rules maybe as an impediment and we're not trying to break the law here, but we're just trying to get the mission done. And the adaptive person is more, I like the rules, I play within the rules, I use the rules to my advantage. And and what I found out was I was on the extreme end of innovative, which didn't yeah. really make me so happy because yeah. <laughs> I, I, I didn't really want to be there, but I, I was like, what, you know, well, gosh, I guess that's where I'm at. And, and the, pre- the people that were on the opposite end of the spectrum, super adaptive, uh, sort of the way it was explained is you may have a hard time bridging the gap with those people. And then there were people in the middle, and they were called bridgers. These are the people who can play both sides of the field and, and help bridge the, you know, the span, the, the difference for us. To your point, I think it gave me a lot of insight into not, not only who I was, but when I understood that my leaders, where they fell on that spectrum, I was like, okay, I know I need to be more in the box for this person and, you know, at least play closer to the to the to the rules or, or if you will. And if you want to build a diverse team, you want to make sure that you don't have all of one thing. Yes. <laughs> in all of these different dimensions, whether it's the Myers-Briggs, because that that Absolutely. is disastrous <laughs> or 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 the, the test that you were talking about. Innovative, adaptive. Yes. Yeah. I think this is going to be true for your cyber aptitude folks as yes. well. Depending on what kind of, you know, if you're building a red team or if you're building a blue team or if you're, you know, depending on what your task is. I think you need, you know, the best teams always have a diversified uh, cognitive ability and cultural perspective, I think, uh, to attract a problem. Uh, It's not exactly accurate, but ducks hire ducks, if you will, so that the team ends up all ducks. Well, that's not really Mm -hmm. good. We need some different perspectives coming at a problem, and, and that's the best way to attack a problem. And, and I think the CyberQ Aptitude battery will help us get there. In my mind, I thought CyberQ Aptitude might be best utilized by CISOs or CIOs. Is that where you think that um, the leadership within the organization would best utilize this skill, uh, this Aptitude battery? Yeah, I definitely. Um, and, and probably more on the CISO uh, side of the house. Yeah, I, I would think so. Um, but again, you may want to cast a broader net among your CIO crowd, you know, the rest of the of the team, you may want to cast a broader net in your workforce in places where you may want to upskill people into other areas and see, um, you know, if they might fit on your team. Uh, some people would call that poaching, I'd call it, you know, good use, <laughs> good use of a workforce that already exists. Absolutely. Um, I'm, I'm just looking at my readout here. And there are four Four corners or four categories. Uh, Myers Briggs has a similar thing, um, but yeah. uh, attack, development, defense, analysis. And again, I, I told you I was more on the 
um, and now a side of the house, but uh, the quadrant. And so I, I could see that if you were going to build a team and you were a CISO looking to build your team, maybe you'd want to fill your team, depending upon what the mission focus was, with um, some uh, team members with each of these different skill sets. Again, depending yep. upon the mission. Yep. Um, what about retention? You know, we talked about that at the beginning. And, uh, you know, in the military, we talked about maybe uh, on a courage commitment, uh, commitment to bigger ideals than a national uh, defense is what motivates sailors. Um, but what about retention in the civilian workforce? Do you think it's the same? Or how do you think the cyber Q aptitude battery will help us with that? Well, I think I think it's exactly the same as it pertains to having people aligned in work that they care about, that they're well mm -hmm. prepared for, that they have an aptitude and an interest for. And so, uh, you know, I think I think the tool can help managers know when they have a miss, you know, a misfit, if you will, uh -huh. <laughs> between sure. the aptitude and where they have somebody aligned. And that gives you options to get them into a place where, you know, a more um, natural fit of their aptitude and abilities. Um, and, you know, it just broadens the range of options that you can use um, in a retention sense uh, to keep people uh, happy, fulfilled, and being able to bring, you know, bring their entire ability into the job that you're giving them. You know, I, I think there's a lot more to that today that we are focusing on than we have ever done before. In the past, you know, especially in the military, especially in the military, um, thanks, you're a potato peeler, that's what you're going to be doing, and, you know, like it. Go ahead and, you know, if you don't like it, then you can move on or something, this sort of idea. But I, I remember one guy, and, and I'll, I'll not say his name because I'm sure he's out there today, but super guy. Uh, but I was at uh, a command and and I was looking for an assistant. And um, I, I, didn't, I didn't have any direct reports, but I was like, hey, I could use an assistant. And so I reached out to my command master chief and I said, hey, I'm looking for just a sailor to help me out, do some of the things we're doing. And we, we were doing some electronic warfare range activity. And uh, so I was really kind of looking for a flyer like the job that you and I had done earlier in our careers. And uh, and he came back a day later and he's like, well, I got this sailor. He's a he's a trouble guy. He, he's he's a problem child. But, you know, he's a prior flyer. And I was like, well, where is he at? Well, he's he's doing cyber work. And I was like, OK. And I was like, I'm, I'm interested in at least meeting him. So the next day, his supervisor brings him down. And in front of me, in front of him, tells me what a poor sailor he is. And so, you know, after the supervisor departs, I was like, hey, man, sit down. Let's, let's chat. I can see by his uh, uniform, his ribbons and all of the activities he's done and his air warfare wings and his air crew wings. This guy is no slouch. So I said, you know, what's the story? Everybody says you're, you know, you're a troubled sailor. He's like, well, I'm, they got me doing cyber work, but I'm not a cyber guy. I'm a flyer and that's what I want to do. I'm like, you, it's your lucky day because you came to the right place. And <laughs> to me, that was the biggest epiphany again of we should pay more attention to trying to do fit and fill um, for, yeah. our, for our team members. They're going to produce more. They're going to believe in the mission more. They're going to be happier. And people who are not problem child uh, children are will not be. He wasn't. He was not. A, he was a high performer. He was just misplaced. And and yeah. even though he tried to tell people, nobody would listen to him. There are so many parallels in the cyber world with the linguists, particularly in the military, 
Um, and I think this applies in the commercial world as well, which is the way we ended up shaping our missions and our commands. Um, almost all the Chinese linguists ended up in Hawaii. You know this. Almost yes. all of the Arabic linguists ended up in Georgia. And yes. almost all of the Russians were in Maryland. And so the master chiefs came and said, we got to, you know, this is no good. People, some people don't want to live in Hawaii their whole life, or some people don't want to live in Maryland. That's, that's all true. Um, my thought was, why don't we start on the front end, making sure people understand <laughs> if you choose Chinese. You're going to Hawaii. You know, you're going to Hawaii. And if that doesn't Seems sound like good, a dream. Pick Arabic and go to Georgia. You know, if you're more inclined yeah. to small, you know what I mean? Small town. And uh, I love Hawaii, but not everybody yes. loves Hawaii. Not so, everybody loves Hawaii. And that's a surprise to some people. Yeah. That's true. So I'm like, why don't we set expectations better on the front end, you know, to the degree that you have some flexibility as opposed to in, uh, let's see, inefficiently reorganizing our billets in places where yes. we've got to have Chinese refresher in Hawaii and Maryland. And you know, the same thing is happening today with, um, you know, the tech workforce in a work from home environment. You know, if you're in a company that says you can be anywhere, you go anywhere. But I think companies who have requirements, on-site requirements, you know, have to think about how that work is distributed, you know, around the country, around the globe. And, um, you know, taking into account what kind of people you're going to be able to recruit to come there. And, you know, I think all of that plays, all of that plays into the retention game. And so, as you suggested, it's getting more and more important to, to, to make the fit right for the whole human being. Um, aptitude and, and preferences, um, you know, and geography, all of that. Um, I think so many times, and especially, I mean, if we think back to even the era before our time, um, you know, the story is, you know, you should just be happy in Hawaii. Why aren't you happy in Hawaii? Well, I, I think what we're doing today and what we're seeing today, companies, maybe more than the military, the return on the investment is so much more when we pay a little bit more attention on fit, fill and placement for the sailors or for the civilian uh, teammates happiness. And uh, I can speak for myself uh, when I'm in a in a role where I really can um, work creatively and 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 maybe even have some um, uh, alternate working hours. Uh, maybe I want to work from 10 p.m. to midnight. Um, maybe I want to do some challenge. I, I absolutely do. I know that about myself. I'd rather do a challenging um, uh, problem that uh, requires uh, not something overnight uh, that we can work over long term and, and see the creative results of that. So I think when we focus more on doing that, and, and I think the cyber Q aptitude battery, just like you said, I think we may be at the leading edge of that, but I really think it's going to help organizations understand their teammates better and help better place them. And and uh, that turns into ROI on the back end. I, I, I agree with you 100%. In the military, we don't think so much about ROI. We, you know, we have a we have a budget. And uh, but in the well, in, and, in the civil- and somebody else pays for the humans, right? Somebody right. else is paying that bill. It's not a whole all, different person. We aren't, yeah, we aren't responsible for the full resources that we bring to bear on the mission. If we were, we'd probably do it differently. Well, we pay more attention to it. And I think civilian companies absolutely, it is a great focus. Hey, what's our ROI? Are we best using our, our talent that we have? 
Anyway, uh, Admiral, it's been very informative, and thanks so much for your help. Let, let's uh, see. We, we talked about a variety of batteries, uh, D-Lab, ASVAB. Uh, Myers-Briggs. Uh, Myers-Briggs, uh, Innovative Adaptive. And all of these batteries help us understand the individual better. But the CyberQ Aptitude battery, especially um, for cybersecurity professionals, I think should be right at the top of that list. And so um, any last words before we wrap up? No, I just appreciate and have really enjoyed the conversation and uh, the reminiscing back to my Navy days, <laughs> yeah. but also yeah. also bridging into you know the similarities in the commercial world. So, uh, thank you for for hosting me on this, and uh, I look forward to uh, any feedback from the from the audience. Oh, thanks so much, ma'am. Uh, thanks for your time, Admiral. It's been a pleasure speaking with you today about the CyberQ Aptitude Battery. And uh, as always, uh, always a pleasure. And I look forward to talking to you in the future. Thanks, Brian. Bye-bye. Thank you for tuning in to another edition of the Global CISO Forum, the podcast for information security executives.